told you this, but Paul will introduce the whole webinar. I'll introduce you and then I'll moderate questions to you at the end. Okay, cool. Hello, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we'll give folks just a couple more minutes to get in the room and then we'll get underway. give folks one more minute. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Paul Bierman. I'm the Director of Education and Events for uh, SNEB. Welcome to today's Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar, the fourth in a series of 10 webinars celebrating the best of JNEB. As the official peer-reviewed journal for the Society of Nutrition, Education and Behavior, JNEB uh, advances nutrition, education, and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. Before we begin, I'd like to review a few pieces of information with you. Captions are available. Uh, you can access those from the toolbar at the bottom of your screen. I will be placing a copy of today's handout uh, in the chat for all of our live participants. 
We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Throughout the presentation, please type any questions you may have uh, into the Q&A box or the chat, and they will be moderated uh, to Jared. When the webinar ends today, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete the survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated as we plan future SNEB webinars. This webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members under the webinars section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent to the next few days, which will include a link to the recording for this session, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. I will now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, Teaching Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen? Thank you, Paul. Today, our speaker is Dr. McGuirt. He is an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. His primary research interest focuses on evaluating practical and sustainable approaches that improve people's dietary behaviors within the context of where they live, work, and play. This includes food environment and food access interventions, which often include digital technology-based approaches. He also aims to understand the influence of the built environment on shopping, dietary behaviors, and health outcomes using geographical information systems mapping software. Today, he's going to be sharing his paper with us. And while he is presenting, if you have any questions, please feel free to put those into the chat box or the Q&A box, and I will moderate those to him at the end. Uh, I want to thank him for presenting today, and at this point, I can pass it over to Dr. McGuirt. Thank you so much, Kristen. I appreciate the introduction. Um, so I'm really excited to give this presentation today. I'm thankful that um, you took time out of your day to attend. Um, I think this is a really interesting and cool project, um, and I'm really excited to kind of show you the methods and some of the thought processes we use to, to go about doing this study. Um, and I think, as you'll see, it's it's focused on on early COVID and um, and there's a focus in one particular state, but I, I do think that the methods and the strategies that we used, I think are, are really interesting and could be applied in a lot of different areas and with a lot of different um, research questions or um, kind of implementation anal uh, analysis type of approaches. So the title of this uh, presentation is Geospatial Reach of the Maryland COVID-19 School Mills Response, and this is spring 2020. So really the focus of this presentation is on what was happening at the very beginning of COVID related to school mills. Um, at the bottom of the screen, I have the affiliations of my of myself and my co-authors, and I'll also um, give a shout out to my co-authors here in a second. But you can see that this was a collaborative effort with people from a lot of different places. Um, so here's a slide that just goes over the nutrition educator competencies um, uh, listed here. And so hopefully by the end of this presentation, these will be things that you'll be able to do. Uh, in terms of disclosures, uh, there's no real, there's no conflicts of interest or anything related to this presentation. We did receive support for this research from the Maryland State Department of Education. Okay, so we're going to start with just a little bit of background to set the stage for this presentation. And I think uh, a big question may be why Maryland and why did someone from North Carolina do a GIS project in Maryland? And really, this uh, really speaks to the power of collaboration and um, looking at opportunities to try and jump into uh, a really important um, 
public health problem that uh, needed some attention. And so my experience has been mostly in retail food environment assessment and using GIS to try and understand that world. And so early on in the in during COVID and um, when a lot of these schools were getting shut down, there was questions around the school mill access and um, you know how kids were going to get access to these these mills. Uh, I had some colleagues reach out to me interested in doing some GIS work, knowing that of my previous work uh, in the retail food environment. And um, so I did a project uh, that I'll actually. Um, point to as we get into the background and looking at some of the larger urban school districts in the U.S. And then that led to this Maryland project. Um, and so one of my collaborators is actually on the call, Dr. Hannah Lane at Duke University, uh, as well as Aaron Hager, Dr. Aaron Hager, at, uh, who was at University of Maryland now is at Johns Hopkins. And then we had also some um, some collaborators that were part of the Maryland State Department of Education, uh, which is really cool because we had this academic and public sector partnership. Um, and so that's Chella Cooper and Leslie Sesson Parks. And then we also had NCUN um, involved as well. So it's always cool to be able to point to a collaboration to see how all these like puzzle pieces come together to create these cool projects. So um, I'm just going to give a quick overview. We all lived it. We all know it. Uh, but, you know, COVID-19 really disrupted a lot of things in the world. And one of those things was school. And so a lot of schools had to uh, close suddenly and abruptly. And this had major implications. Um, so this closing of the schools uh, had to or created this disruption in access to nutritious meals for a lot of those kids. Um, so nearly 30 million school children access school-based federal nutrition assistance programs like the National School Lunch Program and the School Breakfast Program. So this is a really big deal. Um, so in order to try and still reach these kids, uh, some adjustments and adaptations were made uh, to school meal delivery. Um, and part of that was due to the circumstances, but also there was Fortunately, some um, temporary federal and state waivers that created some flexibilities to help continue program operations so that these kids could still have access to these important programs. But some reports did suggest a sharp decline um, in school meal program participation during the pandemic. And so uh, this led to some important research questions like why is that and what's happening and who has access and may that might that be driving this decline given and as well as other factors. So one of the flexibilities, I guess that's most, or that's pretty relevant to this conversation was allowing local school districts to choose where to locate sites. And so this inherently becomes like a geography question, right? And so, and you know, where would these mills be distributed? So in the past there were, you know, it was typically only based off of uh, area income eligibility and like census tracts that met that criteria, but now there's a little bit more flexibility. So in Maryland, um, the emergency provision of the summer food service program uh, was operated during this time, and this was really the, with the goal to help meet the state mandates for school breakfast and lunch. And so program staff had a little more flexibility in being able to choose locations uh, for mill for pandemic mill delivery um, based on their knowledge of their community needs. So I really think that um, 
food with food access and with food systems, I think it's always important to think about who has access to these things and who doesn't. And I think this is important because we need to understand uh, what the potential exacerbations of food insecurity might be. And we also need to think about it as a way to better plan and implement our, our programs. Um, so understanding who has access can help us design and implement these things in a better way in order to better reach children, especially those in under-resourced areas. And so I think that this conversation has not only implications for the COVID-19 pandemic recovery period, which we're kind of like phasing out of, but I think that it definitely has application for any future um, emergencies that might disrupt mill access in schools. And I think more regularly, it can also have implications for planned periods of school closure, such as summer mills and summer mills program. So again, a really important question with all this was what was the geographic reach during this early period of COVID? Um, so again, who had access to these um, pandemic school mill sites and who did not have access and, and who was getting reach and who wasn't? So I think when we think about this, we have to think about the food access domains. And so there's five main domains and really, and we'll talk about a couple of of them later on that we didn't address in this study, but the ones that we really focused in on this study, they're probably the most um, directly related to, to geography or GIS, is availability. So that's the adequacy of the supply of healthy food. So really it's like, is it there or not? So it's kind of a yes, no question, right? And that's really kind of the, the basic question that you have to ask, because really, if it's not there, then none of the other questions are as relevant, right? Um, so really it has to be there. And that's really a foundational piece of the, of the food access domain. So we wanted to look at availability. So were the, where were these things? Were they there or were they not? And then we also wanted to look at accessibility. So this is the location of the food supply and the ease of getting to that location. And typically this is looked at using geographic distance. There's also something that I always like to point to to emphasize the importance of food access and why it matters. There's something from geography, um, the geography world called the distance decay theory. And this suggests that the interaction between two things um, or two locales or sites or whatever, they decline, the interaction declines as the distance between them increases. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, you know, we interact with things that are closer, typically interact with things that are closer to us than things that are further away. And people have actually done some research on this, um, including myself looking at, well, how does this vary across food retail spaces? And so you can see here on this chart on the right, it actually shows how it does differ. Like people are less likely, like people usually have these convenience stores or grocery stores close to them they use, but then they're more willing to drive further out for a, a super store. I, I would love to put add like school meal programs to this chart just to, to learn more about kind of who has access and and how their uh, proximity to these programs declines over space. I, I would love to, to add that to this chart. But I just think it's, it's really important that we talk about and think about this idea that the closer and more accessible things are, the more likely people are to interact with them. So there've been relatively few studies, uh, both during the time when this paper was initially started, but I think just in general, there's been not been a lot of research looking at the geographical reach of these school mail programs, either during the pandemic or just during the summer school mail programs as well. Um, 
the, the study that kind of like we first did that inspired this Maryland project was the one that I talked about earlier, where we looked at the large urban centers. Um, and this was actually kind of, this study was actually kind of alluded to in a, a SNB uh, webinar a few weeks ago, actually. So McLaughlin at all. And I actually was the one that G did the GIS work for this project as well. And basically, we found that most early pandemic mill sites, at least in these four large urban centers, were not located in low-income areas or in USDA-designated food deserts. Um, and this is a little troubling because this is these are areas where students may have inadequate access to healthy food options and could be more dependent on school mills to meet dietary needs. So it really raised a lot of important questions and, and really created a, a lot of research around this question. One of the limitations of that paper was that we really only focused on large, in large urban areas, and we didn't examine differences in those served by eligibility characteristics or site placement across diverse geographic or socioeconomic areas, particularly rural areas. So that work uh, gained some press, and so we actually had uh, someone reach out to us because they were really interested in um, disparities in access to pandemic school mills. Um, in Louisiana. And so we actually did a, a little side project where we were looking at uh, racial gaps in, in school mail access. So again, it was just kind of building this, this literature and this understanding that, hey, there may be disparities and differences in access to these programs. And that's important for us to recognize and try and figure out. So the purpose of this paper uh, was we wanted to use a multi-method geospatial analysis to examine factors associated with access to pandemic mill site distribution across Maryland in spring 2020. And really the main factors or things that we were interested in were access to mill, to pandemic mill, school mill sites across the urban rural continuum. We also were interested in access um, for across socioeconomic and demographic characteristics, including things like population density of school-aged children, the percent of children in poverty, and food desert status. So we'll go through some of the methods, and I think this is really uh, an interesting part of this presentation, and you'll see a lot of different things and a lot of different GIS techniques and approaches that were used, and I think hopefully this will inspire future work. Um, so we there were uh, 1,420 school sites uh, in Maryland and that we mapped, and there were also um, 656 pandemic school mill, mill distribution sites in spring of 2020. And we got this from the Maryland State Department of Education. Um, the mill site level data, we had the physical address of that location, and we also had the number of mills served per site across the different mills. We did batch geocoded uh, these mill sites. So that's just the process of moving from a written address to a point on a map. And so that's what the picture on the right shows. We did this using a program called Batch Geo. We really wanted to do this at the highest level of accuracy possible to reduce measurement error because this is a major question of a lot of GIS stuff is well, how, how much measurement error is there and how accurately did things get geocoded? And so we wanted to really make sure that we did that well. So we used ArcGIS to do our spatial analysis, and we did a bunch of different um, techniques. And so one of those was a spatial join. Um, so this is where we join site, and you see here on the right this image. Basically, you join site locations, so those dots on the bottom, to administrative boundaries and whatever information or data those administrative boundaries contain. And so one example of that is we had administrative boundaries that had urban rural designation, 
based off the National Center for Education Statistics uh, or NCES area level urban rural classification. So this is our way of knowing whether a site was in a rural versus an urban area. We also connected the sites to US Census Bureau, American Community Survey data, the 2014 to 2018 estimates. That was what the estimates that were available to us at the time that we did this. We looked at uh, total school age population. So those age five to 19 years old. And this was really to try and understand potential demand. Um, because again, we didn't have we didn't have like a roster of potential of kids that were using the, the program, but that wasn't accessible to us. So we had to get creative and figure out ways that we could try and estimate demand based off the census data that was that is available to us. We also um, wanted to look at percent poverty, so the percent of households with income below the poverty level, um, and this was so that we could examine socioeconomic disparities in access. Um, we also wanted to do a spatial join where we join mill sites to uh, food desert areas. Um, so we did this by pulling data down from the USDA Food Access Research Atlas. And so we looked at low income and low access census tracts uh, that were measured at one mile for urban and 10 miles for rural areas. And so um, based on those criteria, certain census tracts are designated as food deserts versus uh, and others aren't. So again, we connected the pandemic school mill sites with this uh, food desert uh, information so that we could try to understand the total number of mill sites per census tract for food and non-food desert designated tracts. We also did something called a network, a road network service area. Um, and this was done using the ArcGIS online network analysis service. So basically you create these service areas away from a point of interest using the road network. So we, the road net, networks are kind of a, a indication of what a typical travel behavior is going to be. So again, the idea was calculating distances, both in terms of miles, but also time from mill sites to the population of interest. Um, this is based off census data that we aggregated to create an idea of realistic estimates of, of access based on typical travel behaviors. And so we call these things early pandemic mill site catchment areas. Um, and so for urban sites, we looked at one and three miles um, and rural sites we looked at five or 10 miles. And this was really based off the USDA, uh, how the USDA thinks of access. And so for urban areas, they think things of being of, of access within one mile and rural areas within 10 miles, but we wanted to get, get a little bit more nuance. And so we looked at one in three and five or 10. So next we did a, a different technique called a closest facility analysis. And this is where you try and find the closest location between sites. And so we actually wanted to use population weighted census tract centroids. So this would give us an estimate like where most of the population actually resides within a census tract. Again, this is to help reduce some of the measurement error. Um, and we did this from that centroid, so where most of the people live in the census tract, to uh, the closest pandemic mill site, just to get an idea of how accessible these mill sites are to the majority of the population within those census tract. And again, this the analysis was based on private transportation or people taking their cars, so non-transit, um, or walking along road networks. 
And the population-weighted census tract centroids were pulled from the Integrated Public Use Microdata National Historical Geographic Information System, uh, otherwise known as IPUMS, at the University of Minnesota. I always like to point out where I got the data so that other people know where they can access this data as well. Uh, we extracted out high poverty areas, so those greater than or equal to 20 percent uh, with child of childhood with childhood poverty. Um, and then we generated distances from high poverty census tract centroids to the mill sites. And we also aggregated census tracts uh, together based off the service areas um, and then wanted to look at the centroid of that relative to the mill sites as well. And so that really helps to give kind of a, a more open view of who may have access that's not as confined by administrative boundaries, I guess. So we, for the analysis, we use RStudio and Geoda, a program called Geoda. Um, so we calculated the percent of Maryland public schools located in the early pandemic mill site catchment area of the pandemic mill sites. We uh, looked at the percentage of students eligible for free or reduced price mills who attended the school in the early pandemic mill site catchment areas. Um, and again, we used one in three miles for urban sites and five or 10 miles for rural sites. Um, and we also were interested and curious about the percent of Maryland's total land area that was actually covered by the combined catchment areas. Um, and I'll show you a really cool map that kind of shows that here in a minute. But basically, we did this by combining those catchment areas together, so combining the urban areas and the rural areas, and then we're able to identify all the coverage as well as all the gaps in coverage. So we used Man Whitney Utah and NOAA to examine um, socio-demographic differences in census tracts with and without mill sites. We used something called a negative binomial regression model to examine the associations of mills served at each site. So that was our primary outcome with predictor variables that included census tract socio-demographic variables like total school-age population and percent of children in poverty, as well as urban-rural status and census tract food desert status. We also use something called a spatial lag regression model. Um, this was because, uh, or this is an approach where you use a spatially lag-dependent variable to account for spatial autocorrelation. So really what this is trying to address is the fact that oftentimes when you're looking at things uh, at the larger geographical level, there's a lot of uh, non-independence going on. So the, oftentimes that primary variable or outcome is dependent on its neighbor. So things that are closer together have similar outcomes or data compared to things that are further apart. And so you have to account for that or else it can throw things, your results off. Um, so we used, this is just kind of some, some detail for those that are interested in or are familiar with this approach, but basically we use a weights matrix queen contiguity, the first order. Uh, this is due to a significant Lagrange multiplier lag value. Again, this is done using Geoda. Um, and we looked at the association between the number of mill sites per census tract, that was the primary outcome, and predictive variables of the total school age population, the percent of children in poverty, urban status, urban rural status, and census tract food desert status. Okay. So some a lot of analysis going on. So what were the results? And there are a lot of results that I didn't, I couldn't put into this. So I definitely uh, want to refer you to the paper to look through all these. But I, I pulled out some of the things I thought were pretty interesting. So about 35% of the census tracts in Maryland contained pandemic mill sites. Uh, 
there was an average of a little bit of 0.48 mil sites per census tract, which are really the range is what's interesting is a range of zero to seven sites. So some census tracts had seven sites. Uh, most of those were in dense urban areas. Um, the average distance from population centroids to pandemic mill sites was, I'm not sure why it changed um, some of these uh, things in here, but um, was two point was two miles or four and a half minutes. So that was the average distance from all population centroids to pandemic mill sites was about two miles or about five minutes. But we actually broke that down by urban and rural. And we found that in the urban areas, the population centroids where most people are living in the census tract to the mill site was around um, two miles or sorry, two miles overall, 1.6 miles in urban areas and four miles in rural areas. And um, again, five minutes overall, about five minutes in urban areas and about eight minutes in rural areas. So that just gives you an idea of kind of like how close most of the people were in those census tracts to the closest mill site. The average distance from the service area aggregated geometric centroid to the closest pandemic mill site was about 0.77 miles or about two and a half minutes. So the, the service area aggregated was where we basically pulled like any census tract that was within a service, a certain service area within like a three mile service area. We combined all those together and then placed a centroid in that. And so that gives an idea of like, hey, especially in urban, dense urban areas, Combining all that gives you an idea, a better idea of like how, what was access that's not being confined by these potentially arbitrary administrative boundaries. So here's the map that's showing um, the, this, what I was talking about earlier, where we were able to combine the service areas and see all that was covered and all, and where all the gaps were. Um, so you see the places that had potential reasonable reach to mill sites were all in this kind of teal color. And then the gray, the kind of darker gray areas are all the parts of Maryland that were outside of those catchment areas. There are potentially places that aren't being served. Here's just a breakdown of that. So basically we actually kind of show, we kind of um, disaggregate it. We kind of show, okay, in urban areas with the one mile buffer, that's reflected in the yellow, the urban areas with a three mile buffer that's reflected in the orange. Uh, rural mill sites, the five mile is reflected by green and then the blue is the rural mill sites with the 10 miles service areas. So again, just using a lot of really cool techniques with GIS to try and understand access. This, this is just showing uh, the NCS rural urban classification zones. And so the red and orange areas are urban areas, and then the green and blue areas are the rural areas, and then the black dots are the mill site locations. So you just kind of get a sense where these things were located. So more than half of the eligible students for the free or reduced price mills uh, attended a school located within a more proximal early pandemic mill site area in urban and rural communities. So that was around 66 and 70 percent. So that's a pretty high number. Nearly all children who received free or reduced price meals attended schools within three or 10 miles in urban and rural communities, respectively. So that was around 94, 92%. Um, so if you really look at these kind of larger bubbles of access, um, that, that increased the number uh, that had access. And we were using the schools as kind of a potential anchor point. Like we know that the kids generally have access to the schools. 
So that was what we were basing that analysis on. Even though uh, some of the uh, the programs may or may not have been done at the schools. So this is just a table that kind of breaks that down. Um, and you can look at this within the paper itself. Since this tracks with mill sites had a statistically significant higher rate of total school-age population and school-age children below poverty. So what that's suggesting is that mill sites were placed in areas where there was more need, but overall more school-age population as well as kids that were below poverty. So that's uh, encouraging result. Uh, more than half of Maryland schools were within the more proximal urban or rural pandemic catchment areas of one or, or five miles. Um, about 56% of the food deserts, uh, food desert census tracts had pandemic school mill sites. So it's a little more than half, so that's okay. Uh, obviously, obviously that could be better. And then the I have listed the distances from the food desert centroids to pandemic mill sites. Overall was about 1.8 miles or five minutes. Uh, in urban locations, uh, it was 1.6 miles or four minutes. In rural locations, it was about eight miles or nine miles and 17 minutes. Census tracts with more mill sites were urban, uh, food deserts, and had higher percentages of children in poverty. So again, let's getting at this. So there were a lot more uh, mill sites kind of in these urban areas um, than there were in the rural areas, which kind of makes sense. Um, sites serving fewer mills uh, were in food deserts and areas with more children in poverty. All right. So the top bullet is talking about where these things were. And then the bottom bullet is talking about, well, who is actually accessing these? So even though we had more sites uh, in these urban and food desert and areas in higher with higher percentage of children in poverty, that's actually where we saw the, the less or the fewest amount of mills served. So I think that's an important thing that we'll discuss later. Here's just a map showing the, the bubbles are showing the, the number of mills served at each site. And then the red is, is indicating a food desert census tract. And then in this map, um, the bubbles again are showing the number of mills served at each site, and the red is showing census tracts where they're that are where at 185% of the federal poverty level. All right, so now we'll move to the discussion. So I think it seems like most of these mill sites in both urban and rural areas were within a reasonable distance of schools and students eligible for free, free and reduced price lunch or for meals. Um, and so again, that's going back to this whole like one mile in the urban area is considered good access and 10 miles in a rural area is considered good access. Um, and so again, those it seem like many were within those USDA thresholds. And it could be um, that these federal and state flexibilities generally seem to allow program staff to, select, to effectively select these locations to create ideal access. Although there are some instances where this was inadequate. Most mill sites, uh, again, were within distance of schools and students eligible for free and reduced price mills. Um, I think that's actually, I'll repeat, sorry. Um, the, so again, we saw that poverty levels were a significant explanatory variable for mill site location. 
but fewer meals were actually served in those high poverty areas, um, even after controlling for school age population. So this really suggests that there needs to be some work to try and figure out even that, like how to actually get um, kids using these mill sites um, and that simply placing a mill site, at least in a high need area, may not be enough. Now, there's other factors that could come into play, geographic factors, um, but just looking at poverty is probably not the, the best single indicator of whether a site's going to be successful or not. So are some limitations. So we didn't have individual level residential address data to assess individual level accessibility. That information would be super interesting and, and helpful to look at. Uh, we didn't really have information about how uh, districts use spatial or sociodemographic information to actually determine their site locations. So I think that's just a, a really interesting question that needs more work pursuit in the literature to understand. Uh, we didn't look at walkability factors like sidewalk conditions or non-road network routes. Uh, so some people do uh, walk to school. Um, and so we, if they weren't using the typical road networks, then we weren't really capturing their patterns. Again, our models were based on private transportation um, and again, people and walking along neuro networks. You know, we just mentioned how there could be some limitations with that. Um, and then there's other dimensions of food access, which may be driving factors, over, particularly around use of these sites, right? And so that in, could include things like accommodation. So how is that site set up to best meet the consumer's needs? And then acceptability. So what did the people think about the food that they were getting at these sites and did that influence whether they came back or not. All right, so what are some uh, conclusion implications? I definitely think that this study can inform future summer food service programs or school, school meal distributions during other unanticipated school closures. I think they're, that this at least can serve as a model or as an example of like GIS techniques that you can, you can and should try to look at whenever you're assessing whether these things are working well and people have access to them. I really do think that uh, the influence of geospatial factors really needs to be studied uh, regarding um, school mill, summer school mill program, all that beyond the pandemic period. Future program development and policymaking could use geospatial approaches to optimize site locations to ensure maximum reach to populations in need. And so that's actually something that we're working on. Um, uh, so me and, and Hannah Lane are working on. So hopefully we're, we're able to uh, get funding for that and really uh, figure out how to create that tool because I think it really would help to optimize the locations of these sites. Uh, and then also just thinking about, hey, like in addition to figure out where to best locate these things. Like, let's think about ways that we can communicate about these locations. Let's think about innovations and mill delivery options. Let's figure out some modeling approaches that can just help improve uh, community mill delivery. And that's it. Uh, so thank you. I just want, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I just want to say that I'm always open to collaboration. Uh, my information is there at the top right. And open to any questions. Thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, please place those in the Q&A box or in the chat box. Um, one question I had looking at the, how in the areas with the most needs seem to have less use, uh, do you have any ideas as to why or how would you set up future work to explore why? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I mean, I think there could be a lot of different reasons. And so um, 
I'm sure there's people. So my expertise really is in the access piece of it and really like in the GIS piece of this. This was a really collaborative effort. So there's there may be other people on the and, and Hannah may be able to jump in here and there may be other people that know more about this than I do. But I do think it probably had to do with some of the other dimensions of access. So accommodation. Um, so, you know, how do people feel about these sites? How do they feel about the mills that they were getting? Um, how did they feel like what was the level of communication about the sites and um, you know, did people know about them? All that I think all those things probably come into play. Um I I think that there definitely needs to be and I, I think there is a, a literature, like people have definitely looked into that, trying to understand that. I think there probably needs to be more of an effort to try and integrate these things together. So integrating the understanding of why, like the consumer level, the consumer side, like these are the factors that influence me, as well as these geographic level factors. Because, I mean, you could also get into like, well, hey, like what are the alternatives that a person has in their food environment? Like maybe if they live in an area with, you know, a bunch of fast food, they said, oh, I'd rather go get fast food than go to the mill sites, you know? So I think there's like a lot of different things that could be looked at in the GIS or kind of food access environment world that should be better integrated with this understanding kind of at the participant level of what are those other factors um, that are driving their their decisions around using the mill sites or not. Um, and some of it could also be just like their ability to get there, you know, like what what does the transit look like in these high poverty areas? You know, how safe is it to walk uh, to these sites? I mean, I think there's like a lot of different factors and some and a lot of those things can be measured. There, there's GIS data sets that that we could pull in to look at it and try and understand all that. Yeah. And were they available when they were open even could be a question yeah. to look at. Yeah. So if you were to do similar work uh, to look at like summer meal sites, what would you change or what would you do differently? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think there's definitely some similarities because, you know, we've, we've talked about how, you know, a lot of the people probably still use similar sites. I don't have, I wish I had like in Maryland and some of these other projects, I, I probably do have somewhere like what, what were the differences in locations between pandemic and typical summer mill site locations. Um, but I mean, I think there has been this thought that like a lot of the pandemic sites were the same sites as, as the summer mill locations. So I think there are some similarities there that I think means that like we're not kind of completely starting over from scratch whenever we start to look at summer mill programs. Um, but there obviously probably were differences as well that we would have to acknowledge. Um, and so we have talked a lot about just trying to better understand since, you know, with COVID, with the COVID pandemic mill sites, it was really people were just trying to figure it out. You know, <laughs> there was so much happening in the world. They were just like, hey, like this is a bad situation. Like how do we make the best of it? How do we get kids these mills? kind of, you know, given all the contextual considerations that were happening, right? I think that with the summer mill programs, these are more established and a little more regular programs. So it's, I think, trying to better understand, like, what are the driving factors that really dictate where a site is located? Like, how much intentionality or how much is is had whenever selecting these sites or like what tools are being used uh, to select these sites. Like there are some tools that USC has, um, but it really still keeps a lot of the burden of site selection on um, on the at the sponsor level. And they have all these other things going on. Um, so it, that's why we were 
they were really hoping to develop this tool to try and make it easier for people to at the sponsor level or even at the state level to help figure out, hey, where can we op- or how can we optimize these site locations? Like, how can we make it easier and also make it more dynamic um, so that these sites are located in, in uh, the best area they can be? While also acknowledging that a lot of these summer sites are like they've been in certain places for a long time for a reason. Um, and maybe that's a good thing or maybe it's a bad thing. So I think that the main difference is just trying to is acknowledging and navigating the fact that these summer meal programs are just more regular and established than some of the pandemic meal sites. So where I think it was a little more loose, but someone can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, Hannah put in the chat. I think the only difference is area eligibility. Yeah. Um, and also summer sites have places to congregate. Yeah. Which presumably would not have been happening early COVID times. Well, it's a requirement, um, normally a requirement for summer sites, but during the pandemic, it was not a requirement. So the sites, like there was a little bit more flexibility. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your paper um, and the work. It was very interesting to see uh, just how this laid out on maps. So I really appreciate both of you um, for the work you did and for sharing it with us today. So at this point, I can hand it back to Paul. Thank you, Kristen. And uh, thank you again as well to Jim, both Jared and Hannah. Uh, we, mm, Sorry. Just a few final reminders before I close out today's session. Uh, again, please complete the survey that you'll receive after the session closes. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Be on a lookout for uh, the email with today's recording, handouts, and your CEU certificate. If you enjoyed today's webinar, uh, be sure to check the upcoming webinar section of the website. The Journal Club continues next Monday. That concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.